So when I went into engineering school, that was my first um, harsh reality of being a woman in a male world. You're listening to the Experience Sikhi podcast, a deeper look into the Sikh identity. We present to you open, honest, and inspiring stories. No armor, pretense, or sugarcoating. Just a disclaimer, this show has been recorded over Skype, and we apologize for any hiccups on the audio. Hope you enjoy the episode. Our guest today is Bulavinder Kaur. She studied at the renowned Indian Institute of Technology, most commonly known as IIT and is currently working on a startup within the IoT space. She has previously worked at T-Mobile and AppDynamics, which was acquired by Cisco recently. Balvinder was a pioneer in Android technology when it was being brought to the consumer market. In her spare time, she volunteers as a board member for Kalis Foundation, who is responsible for apps such as Sikhi to the Max. She is also an organizer at Code.org. So without further ado, here's Balvinder Kaur. Why good ji ka khalsa, why good ji ki fateh. Welcome, Welcome Bovinder Kaur. Thanks for being on the podcast with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. For sure, for sure. So we're going to jump right into it. Um, can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So um, I'm a mother of two boys. I'm a software engineer. Um, in my spare time, I am also a Khalsa school teacher. I teach the oh, nice. preschool kids and have been doing that um, for almost 14 years now. I teach three and four year olds. And in my still more spare time, I am also a board member of the Khalas Foundation, the group, the Sikh tech group that builds uh, Sikhi to the Max and Sundar Gutka apps. And in yet my more free time, um, I am now championing a Sikh Women in Tech initiative to wow. bring all the nice. uh, Sikh women in tech together and um, help the younger generation of girls coming into the tech fields to um, learn from those of us who have been here in a while. So that's pretty much who I am. Yeah, I don't understand how you have, I know. you kept saying, and my more free time. And I'm like, <laughs> how do you have that much free time? Because it doesn't seem like it. I know. And you're based out of California. I'm based out of California. Yeah. And I, so these days as part of my job, I am, um, I am incubating my own startup and I am consulting at the same time for another startup. So that's my day job. Fair enough. And then do you want to tell us how you came onto the path of Sikhi, what it was like growing up? Um, I know you were born in India and then you, your family came to America. Uh, sure. So, um, I am born to, um, my father is a uh, PhD in chemistry, and my mother is a, a professor of mathematics. Wow. And uh, yeah, so I was raised, and I was here as a little child. My father had come here on a postdoctorate fellowship, so I grew up uh, in New Jersey and then Indianapolis, but then my parents decided to go back uh, to India, and I grew up um, in a small, very academic environment uh, in the western state of India called Gujarat. Uh, it was a small uh, campus uh, with a lot of PhD students on it, and that's where I grew up um, in a very... There were a lot of people who used to visit uh, the campus from um, out of India and on the campus as well. It was a very academic uh, environment. And I wasn't very much exposed to Sikhi at that time, other than being raised by uh, Sikh parents. I was probably the only Sikh on the campus. I was the only Sikh girl and my brother, the only boy uh, in the school. So we grew up with Sikh values and with our case, and we would go to the Gurdwara every now and then, but it wasn't really very spiritual. It was more academic than spiritual and also very high standard of ethics and very 
high character building. So those were the values instilled at me. Um, but my father's family is very spiritual, and my father's older brother uh, would start visiting us while we were growing up uh, on some of his business trips. And when he used to talk about Sikhi, it was very different than what I would hear at the Gurdwara. Uh, and he appealed to me from a very philosophical standpoint. And uh, he would call out things in our religion, which to me seemed unfair. Like we always would say that there is no caste system in Sikhi. And yet we would keep talking of and I could not, I found that incongruent, but my dad's father started calling those things out. And then I thought, yeah, like, okay, he makes sense. He is calling out things that are not right within our religion. And he's the one who actually molded me and inspired me to, and it started with falling in love first with Sikhi. So he would come and tell us Sakhis. He's the one person who woke up at Amritvela all through his life till the last day that he, that he was alive. And so was my Dadaji as well. But I am more influenced by my dad's brother than I was by my uh, Dadaji. And uh, he would tell me Sakhis and that those Sakhis became very dear to me to the extent that uh, about 10 years, or not 10 years, about 14 years back at the Fremont Gurdwara, there is a Sikh Children's Day that is celebrated. And um, there was nothing for the little kids when my own children were very young. So mm -hmm. I took upon myself to propose that can we start telling Sakis in a very immersive and interactive manner? And that's how Saki Land was born. So almost practically every year we do one Saki where we bring to life the same Saki and we don't enact out any of the Guru Chasabs mm -hmm. or we don't enact any of the Gursiks. But what we do is we take a real problem, real uh, life problem that children in um, United States or Canada would face. Mm -hmm. And then in a fun way, we package it and relate it to a Saki of our Sikh gurus. For example, one year we did the Saki of Guru Tegh Bahadur Ji and we actually built a boat, which Makkhan Shah Lubana's boat, the one that was about to drown. And the kids sat on it, on a boat, in the water and listened to that Saki. And then we just, uh, we, uh, we finish it up by having the kids race boats in water and build a boat. So we do craft, uh, and then we always have a seva component of it. So that sakis that I listen to as the children are the ones that uh, are so part of me that I, that's how I'm doing it, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that's how I got into Sikhi. And for me, uh, it's like we have a kazana mm -hmm. and my biggest um, sort of pet peeve is that we really don't know how to package it and we don't really know how to spread it. It's so beautiful and so powerful. And we still use the tools that maybe three generations back people did mm -hmm. in India. We need to change. And the example I give is that um, what we really need to teach is Madi Dal Kime Banani, right? We don't we don't need to teach the kids. Angiti Balni, right? You can take a modern Italian style professional chef kitchen and still, you know, make Madi Dal, mm. right? So, so you and and I think that's like one of our uh, one of our drawbacks as a community is that we mix up the tools with the content, and constant innovation on the tools needs to happen while preserving the goodness and the purity. Content of the content mm -hmm. and we don't get it. So anyway, I don't even think I answered what your questions were. I just kind of like on a tangent somewhere. <laughs> no, so. no, you did. That was great actually. And it, it was uh, very insightful actually for me, mm -hmm. um, especially the that last part where you mentioned about the tools and the content uh, being separated. And I think we do confuse uh, the two and amalgamate both of them together very closely. Um, and we should create that separation. It was very good. Yeah. 
Um, so what we're gonna do um, is actually kind of shift gears a little bit, and uh, we're gonna go into your career. Um, we wanted to ask, how did you get to where you are in your career? Like education, training, experience. How was that path um, kind of forked? So my, like I said, I was raised in a very academic um, environment, uh, and my uh, parents were um, very focused on academic. The thing I'd like to highlight here is that I was raised very differently that girls in India are raised, especially um, my generation, right? Uh, I've been in the STEM field in engineering for 35 years now. So girls did not get raised like this. And one of the big reasons why I was able to pursue a path um, when there were not too many women who did engineering or went to engineering school is because of my father. Uh, he has always been a big proponent of strong women, and he got married to my mother, who was raised by her father. So my nanaji raised my mother as um, his fourth son. So mm-hmm. she was the youngest child and daughter of the family, but she was raised like her brothers were raised, and in some ways she was even stronger and more um, influential within her own family. Mm -hmm. She used to be sent on chores. So basically what I'm saying is like my mother was also raised very strong. Uh, She used to do in her time, she's 80 years old now. So in her time, she used to do things that girls her age did not do. And then my father got married to her and they raised me not, so I'm not raised, um, I am not raised like most girls were raised. And I think that is something for people to understand that the environment that you create at home, Mm -hmm. right, goes a long way. And one of the trends I notice is that now people have started giving their daughters better education than they used to, but that by itself is not enough. You need to still, they give their daughters education, but they still have disparity in how they treat their sons and daughters. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that is something that needs to get fixed. So I have two boys and in my household, there are no gender defined roles. My husband and I, both of us, depending on the schedule, depending a little bit on the interest, we divide all our chores. So if somebody were to go and tell my sons, that, oh, the girls do this or the boys do this, they would just look at you with black faces because they don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So going back to my uh, professional, this thing, I was raised uh, with strength. Like my dad always never told me that here, this is not something you cannot do. By personality-wise, I was always with a lot of initiative. If anything, my parents had to restrain me a little bit because I would just... And... (laughs) I could take on adults when I was six years old, right? <laughs> and, um, so, and initially I wasn't so much fond. I was always a very good student. Um, I loved to learn. I was a public speaker. And my mother was what we like to call a dictator at home. So she had very <laughs> standards of, you know, what needed to get done. Uh, And so both my brother and I, we grew up in that. Growing towards high school, I started falling in love more and more with math and physics. Mm -hmm. Uh, And although my father is in the biosciences, um, and he was very mesmerized by biotechnology and genetics, and he would say, don't you just love how, you know, life Mm -hmm. uh, evolves? I was like, no, dad, (laughs) I do not want to do that. Right. And then and I was still unclear. But by the time I got to my senior year in high school, so the 12th grade, um, I knew I wanted to be an engineer. Mm -hmm. And so I um, so the way the education system works in India was that, you you know, you do your finish your board examinations after Mm -hmm. your 12th grade and then you apply to all schools. And I had the option at that time to apply both for medicine, engineering. Basically, I was. out of 100,000 students that took the board exams, I was placed, I think, number 20 on wow. the 
uh, merit list. So oh. I could have gone into any school, any profession, anything that I wanted, right? Mm. There was there was because any program takes at least 20 students, right? right. Um, so I chose to go in for electronics and uh, communications. Mm -hmm. um, there wasn't, the computer science field wasn't so much uh, prevalent uh, at that time. So when I went into engineering school, that was my first um, harsh reality of being a woman in a male world. Mm. Up till then, I was always I was always lucky that I had a lot of support at home, and I was also very lucky that all through till tenth grade and uh, till um, high school, I was always in a class where there was at least four or five other very strong girls mm -hmm. in the class. So I was never by myself. But once I went into engineering school, it was a completely different ball game, right? The yep. professors were mostly male. They, uh, I was two of 30 girls uh, in a class. And I think the worst was the culture, Yeah. right? The culture was that um, girls, it, they had this whole concept that, you know, girls will take an engineering seat and then they get married and they don't work. And that seat could have gone to a boy and he would have had a nice livelihood for his family. And they used to say, I was, was in Gujarat. I don't think Punjab was any different. Uh, but they would say, right? Like, like you spoil the seat. And I have sat in classes where you should have seen the expression on some of the professors' faces. Like, he was like, dang, you're good. And I said, and what else did you expect? Mm -hmm. Like, it's like, you're good. Like, you should have seen them, like, overcoming that, oh, she's a girl, but she's still good. And then uh, I sat in a class where there's like now 30 students and the professor comes up and says like, why are you in this class? And what do you, what do you want to get out of this class? I'm like, what do everybody else wants? Just clear the semester, right? Well, that's right. what students want, you know. <laughs> clear the, get to the next one. Don't get an F, right? Uh, yeah, seat, the seat could have gone to a boy and you know, their families would be happy. And I was just going to, you know, get all this education and get married and never work, right? Right. Um, so that was a tough four years. But at the end of it, some of my classmates who used to virtually hate me in the beginning of four years came up to me and said, you have changed our impression about girls. So it was not an easy journey. Um, but I survived. Yeah, yeah. and fruitful. I did well. Yeah, you did very well. So after that, I did my master's in computer science and technology from the Indian Institute of Technology, mm. uh, and that culture was much better. Can you hear me now? Yeah. yeah no, yeah. I'm just surprised. It's so it's IIT, like the the yes. IIT. Wow. Okay. The IIT. Yes, yeah. that one. <laughs> <laughs> It's renowned. <laughs> Everybody knows about that engineering school. So yeah, those yeah. classes. Yeah. Yeah. So I've I I did my master's from there. Then I worked um, uh, at a company in India for a couple of years before I moved uh, to the states. And I moved to uh, Boston area. And since then, I've been working in different, I, I was in Boston for about five, six years before moving to California and the Silicon Valley. Um, and here in the Silicon Valley, for the last uh, 20 years, um, I have first 10 years, I have worked on mobile. So uh, Java mobile for the flip phones, you probably weren't, you guys weren't even born then. When <laughs> no, we've phones. used them. <laughs> we've used them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, I, I, I did um, a lot of work around mobile. Uh, then I moved into Android and I did, um, I was part of the founding team at T-Mobile. So the Android oh. phones were launched uh, by T-Mobile because the other carriers didn't want to carry it. And they created a small R&D group right in front of the Google complex. Mm. So I was part of that um, group after that. I During the time working with Android and phones, I became very fascinated with sensors mm -hmm. uh, that, and and so I started moving more and more towards sensors. 
while I was at T-Mobile, I worked with the UC Berkeley to um, get a industry academic project uh, going. It was called iShake, where they would use the sensors and accelerometers on your phone uh, to predict and detect um, earthquakes because California's earthquake mm -hmm. region. Um, right. After that, I moved to a image sensing company, which is not very well known, but uh, there I did a couple of things. I worked with the Android camera stack, so you'll probably find a lot of my uh, talks and um, uh, presentation slide decks around cameras and mm -hmm. Android. I also got an opportunity around the 2014 timeframe to work on an IoT, Internet of Things uh, project, and I delivered my first IoT product while I was there. It was a video development uh, mm -hmm. kit. Um, in 2015, uh, I was uh, recruited by a company called AppDynamics uh, to start their IoT uh, product. Uh, and AppDynamics is a very enterprise, uh, cloud-based uh, software company. Uh, I was there for about three, three and a half years, and I helped uh, jumpstart and deliver version one right. of that. Uh, and in last year, uh, the company got acquired by Cisco, uh, and uh, the culture changed within the company. So I'm not, as, I'm not a very, as it I'm does. not a very, yeah, I'm not a very good fit for large companies. Mm -hmm. um, so my specialty now is a zero to one, like yep. take something from. So I'm a serial founding engineer, uh, and now I'm doing both consulting for um, Meta Company, and I am also uh, starting my, I'm also bootstrapping my own startup, uh, and it's wow. still very much in stealth mode, and I can't provide a lot of details, uh, considering the podcast is going to go public, but I can tell you <laughs> it has elements, uh, elements um, of artificial intelligence, uh, IoT, and it's so one of the things that um, while I was at AppDynamics, something I worked really, really hard on getting the product launched. And after, after like a lot of hard work and a lot of navigating the internal politics, especially since there was so much transition, mm -hmm. um, management was changing, we got acquired. It's just that is a very turbulent time for a company. For sure. When I finally got everything released and went out of my way to get it done, and the first, so out of that, I had conceived um, a lot of the pro the product, like the product management side of it. I had also coded a small module. And then once the customer who was going to use the module that I coded, I had to handhold the customer. I was so underwhelmed by the impact of my work. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of a, aha moment for me. It was like, I worked so hard and I did so much to get this product released. And is this what I worked for? And that day I realized that my next job, whatever I do, it needs to have impact. Mm -hmm. Like the way I look yeah. at it is, it needs to have impact. Like when I'm on my deathbed and I look back at my life, I should have done something, right? Like you spend so much of your time and energy doing at work mm -hmm. and it needs to have so so one of the things about Silicon Valley that sort of it makes me sad is that we have some of the brightest minds really really bright people and when I see that the problems they're solving is advertisement social media entertainment yeah I think there is something fundamentally wrong we have like major problems to solve. We have environmental problems to solve. We have education. We have um, wealth inequalities, right? And all that brain power mm -hmm. people are using to solve like, how do we make more money by doing Facebook ads yeah. or YouTube ads or Google ads? It's like it's something yeah. fundamentally wrong, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. it's unfortunate. The but the issue is, is that the market pays for those other aspects, right? Versus um, yeah. this, right? And that that's the unfortunate part. Um, not knowing that in the long run, that'll have a larger impact on uh, on society, right? So, I just realized that I did not touch upon a um, couple of things. Um, 
when you asked me about tell a little bit about yourself on your Sikhi journey. Mm-hmm. So I think I should tell you a little bit about what motivated me um, for Amrit Chakna and then um, much later what motivated me to wear the star. Yeah. Um, so uh, I was around 20. 21 when I started interacting with my Thayaji and I started loving Sikhi mm-hmm. not not as a prescription that in some households you find like and if you don't do this right if you don't follow all your nitname and this thing you're just bad people not that it was more love right mm-hmm. um, and I have learned that when you come face to face with death That's typically for most people, a moment where people pause and look at their lives. Mm -hmm. And so I was uh, doing my master's at Rurki when my cousin brother, who was a couple of years younger than me, met with an accident and died very suddenly. And that was a moment where like, he passed away in less, in like a month. Like why? It can be my turn next. Mm -hmm. And what do I want to do, right? Like, is there something that I want to do? Like, how do I know it's not my turn next? So that sort of was a big prompt for me that, yes, I don't want to die without Amrit Chakna, right? Um, And that's sort of, because sometimes you just keep thinking of things, but you don't execute to it, right? Because there's no external force that's making you do it. And the same thing with um, the star. So I remember my first memory of seeing a BB with the star was when I was very, very young, maybe about five or six years when I was in Gujarat. And we had very limited interaction. But there was one family that used to come to the Gurdwara. And I was like, oh, she looks so nice. And then over the years, the thought that, you know, uh, I would also like to do, I would like to cover my head, I would like to put another star, it kept in kept coming and going. Uh, and sometimes it was more pronounced and sometimes it would be like, yeah, whatever, I am who I am. Right. But it never went away completely mm-hmm. till again, you know, you come face to face with death, right? Um, so in my neighborhood were two ladies. One was my children's uh, Kirtan teacher. And then there was a neighborhood that was a very nice, lady near the Gurdwara. So I don't really consider myself a nice person because I'm very outspoken and I am (laughs) very blunt and I am very, I am not nurturing. Like even as a mother, I am not a nurturing person. I'm a very, you know, analytical kind of person like X, Y, Z, let's do that. Right. And that's very contradictory to what the image of a mother is Mm -hmm. or image of a woman is. Right. And so I don't really consider myself an you know, like a nice person. But I, both of those past, past, those two people, those two women who were actually very nurturing, very, you know, that image of who I am not, they were that really, really nice ladies. And both of them passed by cancer. And then I started thinking, do I want to be like on my deathbed, sick and ill and thinking that I had all this opportunity when I was active and you know, healthy and I could do stuff and I wanted to wear the star and I didn't. And so that sort of just made me do it. And then mm-hmm. I, I, I was at the workplace and then I transitioned from not wearing the star to wearing the star. And so there's a whole story around that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we were actually going to ask. So you did have some struggles when you were in college of being one of the few females pursuing engineering. But once you were in the working, uh, working full time, like what was that like as a female and then um, as a sick? So, um, so re- rest of my story is working here. And I would think I've, I had a journey uh, where when I came to this country, I just thought that, you know, that whole unfairness towards women is such an Indian thing and everything is fair and good in United mm-hmm. States. And, you know, women have it great till I met like another uh, white American girl uh, who had a very similar background like mine. She was right. raised by nerdy parents. She grew up in California, <laughs> uh, Caucasian white. And she was like, no, Belvinder, even my childhood was like that. Yeah. And then I realized, oh, it's just it's 
different in the sense here it becomes all about dating when you get into junior high whereas there it gets about keeping yourself marriageable mm. so this cultural norms are different but the journey isn't necessarily uh smooth but to be honest i was very naive um for many years almost 10 years while working in the united states uh, i just thought everything was good i was happy actually i was very happy when you're when you're blissful it's called blissful ignorance yeah um and then when I went to T-Mobile, I had a manager who said, you know, you're my biggest problem. And I was like, really? Why? He says, because you're paid, you're so underpaid. I don't even know how to fix your salary, right? And then he, he um, mentored me a lot. And there were like a bunch of us who were all senior engineers. But he mentored me and I was the first one to get promoted to a principal mm-hmm. um, engineer. And he sort of fixed a lot of my, like, uh, remuneration. So I didn't even know that I was always at the lower mm-hmm. percentile, yeah. percentile of this. I was like, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm just, just plain happy, right? right. <laughs> uh, and then when I still, and still then after that, I went to this image sensing company. Um, there, the, now the industry had started talking about women in tech. And um, I still felt that I was, you know, pretty well because in that company I was actually, I was a member of the technical staff and I was probably the highest uh, individual contributor. And I participated, but I didn't, I wasn't, I, there was no call to action for me. Mm-hmm. I was more a facilitator for the younger uh, engineers and yeah. I did not completely even relate to it. Um, so then I went to one company and I was really surprised with the environment, the culture there. Uh, I found I found that all I initially I thought it was just me, right? And that um, everything just seemed very difficult, and you couldn't really put your finger on what the problem was, but something didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and initially, I thought it was just me having some interpersonal rela- like relationship problems with people. Then I started observing that there was a pattern and that a lot of the other women, mm-hmm. right, um, ha- were, were having something similar going on. Right. And uh, then because I was the again, a very senior individual contributor, I was not in a management role. Then I found some of the girls started coming and uh, confiding in me. And they had the same exact issues that I had, right? And then I realized that this was a serious cultural problem. Um, And when I had collected around seven, eight of these stories, and then there was an an issue where, then there was an initiative where they wanted to start a women in tech initiative with the company. So I raised my hand. And it so happened that I had had such, I would, and there was a form to fill out, right? And generally, if there was a form to fill out, I would have just written like three sentences each and just hit the submit button. But I had just come out of like a really bad meeting with a guy, and I was shocked at hearing some of the things that they were saying, that I was in some mood. So I just really filled out mm-hmm. that form. Mm. And guess, of course, I got picked to be one of the core members, and then uh, I was part of the core leadership, um, and I worked very hard. Just I had worked very hard on that initial IoT product. I really also worked very hard on the Women in Tech initiative. And one of the things when you do culture change kind of um, initiatives, you do not see results for a very long time. Yeah. In fact, I don't even know whether everything I had done um, made a difference or didn't make a difference. But there was a patch of about four or five months where it was really hard for me to even enter the office. And I, believe it or not, used to tell myself, I used to remind myself of my Pankar, how she took Mm -hmm. on all the guys. And I told myself that I am not doing this for Balvinder. I am going to take this up with the people, with the executives, with the HR people, just like 
you know, like a Gursik, Gurgobind Singh's daughter mm-hmm. would do it for others. And I had to do this. And I have never cried in the workplace or at college, even when it was really, really, I might have come home and cried. But at this particular place, I cried in the office. It was that harsh a work environment. Wow. But the best, best, but the best part was after I had gone through all of that, after I left, people came and told me that, oh, you know, this person and this person and this person for whom you actually, I was one of the voices. They all got their jobs. They wanted to move careers. They wanted to get promoted. They wanted to get into management. It happened for them. And the best was when one girl came and told me, she said, Bulwinder, thank you for what you did. You know what? That manager, he came and apologized to me. And I was like, the manager apologized to you? So I was just grateful. But that's that's an amazing impact that you got, have had a chance to have within your career Mm -hmm. um, and helping other women get ahead. Um, For sure, it's still a struggle for a lot of people in different industries as they are still a minority. Um, Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, We're going to kind of go into detail now of of, uh, uh, the day-to-day of uh, your your, um, career. So what does a software engineer's day look like? I know that you've had many different positions, so there might be different answers for the relative positions that you might... um, talk about but maybe for someone who's starting out how how is that experience oh um so there's actually there's a blog post that i wrote uh if you just google for my name and 10 unwritten lines of a job description that will give you a lot of good tips on if you are new mm-hmm. uh, to your jobs so i would highly recommend uh, reading that for anybody who is starting out okay um my day-to-day really, it, it varies a lot because I I am, as being part of the zero to one, my specialty almost is that I can wear a lot of hats. I can do product management, product marketing. I can sit down and code. I can do dashboarding, UX, UI testing. So I do a lot of things. So I am not a good example of what does a typical day of a software engineer look like i can tell you what a typical day of a startup engineer startup engineer looks like but sure. not start. yeah, yeah. We, so, we we were going to talk about your uh, startup as well and so how is that different from your previous position so uh, i guess this is the perfect time for you to answer that so there's uh, multiple different roles in a mature software organization um, there is software engineering, software engineering in test, DevOps, product management, quality, technical program management. Um, and these days, a lot of them will be data engineers, data scientists, ML ops, uh, people who are doing artificial intelligence. So in that, in those mature organizations, your expertise is in your depth in a particular field not so much your breadth. I mean, you have to have some breadth, but a better software engineer is the one uh, who has a lot of depth in whatever they are dealing with. If you're a UI engineer, right, then how savvy are you in understanding, um, in building the UI, in under- keeping yourself abreast to changes in technology, in understanding how you interface with uh, different uh, components and what the ramifications are uh, in terms of uh, if there are design choices to be made, do you mm-hmm. make it on the UI side? Do you make it on the middleware? So that's where you play in, right? You may or may not know nothing about how databases will work, mm-hmm. right? Versus if you're working in a startup, right? You need to, even if you're not the smartest, best UI engineer, but you are able to switch between uh, different components. You know uh, how all, you are able to see um, the big picture and then you know how the different pieces work and then you are able to dive into whatever piece um, you're working on. And you probably will never have the same level of depth that mm-hmm. a dedicated engineer has, but 
enough that you can scale, mm-hmm. right? Right, right? And and you learn a lot and you'll learn very fast. But growing, if you're just starting your career, I think in the first 10 years, having a mix of working in a mature company and working in a startup actually is the best bet. If you just work in startups, you don't, you miss out on the opportunity of learning, getting a lot of expertise from very knowledgeable people. If you just work in big companies, then you get very siloed in what you're doing. So if I had to give one piece of advice for people starting out, I would say that the first 10 years, you should actually try out as many different roles as you would like to, mm-hmm. but definitely um, switch maturity of companies because you're going to round out your personality um, sooner and you're also going to figure out where you like to be mm-hmm. because there are initiators and there are sustainers. Yeah, and that's, everybody's- that's actually a, yeah. a, a good point. I just wanted to kind of go off of that point uh, specifically. So would you recommend they start off at a startup and then move to a larger company or the inverse? Because I, I do think that's important possibly. Um, no, I, I really don't have, uh, I, I think either way it will work. Okay. Mm-hmm. There are pros to cons for either of, um, either of the approaches. Uh, you can start off with the, a somebody can it, it really also depend on who you are there are some people who would absolutely drown if there is no structure mm. and if that person were put in a startup to start with they would be lost beyond mm-hmm. uh, fair enough they would really they would drown right um and then there are uh, others who um would thrive in that high energy mm-hmm. thing and some startups can be very aggressive and if you're just starting out and you don't have really other distractions like um, you know a family or other things that you want to do then a startup is a great place because mm-hmm. you that's what you're doing you can put in like 10 hour days 12 hour days um, and so I think it's a per person um, whatever works right mm-hmm. fair enough and then, then the other thing that's like a favorite thing of mine is that focus on high throughput, not high input. So I did say you can work 10 to 12 hour days, right? But we generally seem to think that high input results in high output, but that's not true. Mm-hmm. You need to put yourself in a mindset where your output is highest, right? And so learning to train yourself and trying to measure yourself at all times on high throughput or how high output is actually the way to go. Right. So work work smarter, not harder. Right. I'm a big proponent of that. Yeah. yeah. And you did t- touch on some advice, um, but did you have any other advice for young adults? Um, we also mentioned that you have a blog that people can refer to, but maybe in terms of what technologies that they should um look into when they're starting out um, or even maybe trying to get themselves some mentors in the industry? Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's a very good point. I think I would never recommend what technology um, to start off because it changes Mm -hmm. very, very quickly. The skill to develop is um, self-learning and love for learning. and I was actually very surprised. I had like an engineer from MIT. I had an engineer once come up to me and she said, I'm struggling. I don't know what it works. What should I do? And then I gave her a lot of tips on, you know, what she should do. And then I just at the end asked her, so where do you go to school? And she goes, MIT. <laughs> and then I started thinking, am I just mentoring somebody from MIT? And then I realized what the problem was. The reason she probably was successful at MIT or she got into MIT and was successful and got a good job was because she was a very good student and thrived in structure. And guess what? That person is now in a startup, right? And there's no structure there. And she never learned how to self-teach herself. So I one piece of advice for start software engineers is if you don't like to learn, you're in the wrong field. 
Right. Just quit mm-hmm. and go someplace else. You have to love to learn. Regarding mentors, always have two mentors, one within the company and one out. The outside one will always be very objective and has no personal interest. The one who is internal knows the power dynamics and knows the internal path of the company and what is going on. And so that person can help you navigate internally much better. But they can trip up because sometimes if they're in a management position, they cannot share certain Mm -hmm. um, piece of information. Sometimes their own personal interests might become a barrier to helping you. So having a combination of both um, typically helps. Wow. Yeah, Yeah. no, that's very good information. mm And so the other thing is like you should always just like how you keep a checklist of all your tasks that you have to do uh, and you keep a checklist of like your finances, right? How many bills do I have to pay? What is due? Also, you need to keep a checklist of your professional contexts and relationships. Identify within your workplace to make you successful at your job. Who are the different people with whom you need to get along, mm-hmm. right? If you're if you're a software engineer, you need to have good relationships with your PM. You need to have a good relationship with the testing team. You need to have a good relationship um, with maybe the marketing person, right? Or your manager. So taking the time and um, one tracking because if, what you cannot measure you cannot improve. So mm-hmm, keeping, definitely. and I do a very simple, I do a very simple thing. Is it red, green, or yellow? And then learn tricks of conflict management. Take a course on the soft skill, mm-hmm. right? And if you, and, and just like how we debug, um, debug uh, code, uh, learn the skills, learn the tools to debug interpersonal problems and then apply patches. Mm. Nice. So that, yeah, so that just needs to be done. Yeah, for sure. I, I like that. I think that'll mm-hmm. be the uh, kind of tagline of the episode. <laughs> um, and just coming into that, still kind of going down the same track. Um, I know you mentioned you wouldn't recommend particular technologies to newcomers. Uh, but what about certain spaces? Like, for example, looking at blockchain or looking at IoT, like you mentioned, should there be a space, obviously, uh, depending on their interest, there'd be different spaces, but something you would recommend to look at, at least? Yeah, so I'm not going to recommend spaces. I think they have to um, experiment. Uh, I think you have to look at this entire thing from a very different perspective. You want to sort of narrow yourself down to, it's, it'll be a combination of interest, right? Um, some people, for example, somebody who's ultimately going to be a very good UI person is they would have to be somebody who loves um, human interactions, who loves, who understands how humans interact with machines. They have some good sense of design. Um, and then some space that they like. And then within that, you go and try and see, like they might be very passionate about sports or education mm-hmm. or medicine or um, automobiles. So find something that is one sort of skill-based passion and the second is domain-based passion. And then go down and start learning about what stacks are there and what's coming. Okay. So just a stack by itself is not really the way to go. The reason I'm in IoT is because I love the interface of hardware and software. Mm-hmm. So anything where there's a device, it excites me. There are other people who would break in a sweat if there's a device put in front of them, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so you have to look at what... Um, and I think just keeping yourself abreast of, um, of what's happening. Another thing I think that typically, like, especially the Punjabi mentality, Indian mentality, 
we would spend any amount of money on, on you know, investing in a new car, good clothes, a vacation. But do we as, and we invest in our education till the time we are in college. After that, we don't spend the money to go, you know, if the company is not paying for a conference, mm-hmm. why can't we pay for it ourselves? Why not put amount? I don't know. Maybe a year. Maybe we do it once in three years, right? Um, online courses. There is so much online material available, and it costs like forty-five dollars a month, right? We need to make it a priority to invest in ourselves, because this field is not meant for anybody who cannot teach themselves. Or make the effort. If maybe you're not a person who can learn by yourself, maybe you're a social learner, collect three or four people and say, hey, let's get together on Saturdays and let's learn this. If you really want to learn something, go teach it. Go to a community college, seva di seva, gurdwari class lalo, right? You want to learn something new and start teaching it. So what I'm saying is, it's not you, you 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 can't stop learning and that's like fundamental to a sick right you, mm-hmm. you don't stop learning. exactly yeah, yeah for sure would you say there's anything um you would say to avoid as you progress in your career becoming uh, fearful hmm. fearful like of stop. like change yeah yeah fearful of change fear of fearful but see that's again um i if there is somebody there are Generally, people fall into two classes when they uh, work. Some people want their workplace to provide them stability. And they have their fun and their energy. They get their energy from out of work, right? Maybe they're very passionate of mountaineering or biking or yoga or traveling the world. They just want their workplace to be very stable, there are others who go to work for adventure. I am the one who goes to work for adventure. My husband is completely opposite. Mm-hmm. He likes he likes things to be calm, right? He's just generally a very much calm person. He balances me out. Yeah, I was just about to say that. <laughs> oh, yeah. He just completely balances me out, right? I mean, he keeps me sane. He keeps the our whole family sane. He, he's, he's just a great guy. Um so, and and I, that's completely okay for people um, to have a very stable job. In that case, the way you approach it is different. You still have to learn because that's almost a requirement. Yeah. But maybe you don't have to do as much, right? The other thing is it could be different phases of your life. For example, I had a friend who unfortunately is now going through a divorce, and there's so much turmoil in her personal life. The last thing she wants is turmoil at work. Mm-hmm. She just wants it to stay as light. And it's perfectly fine. I'll t- give my own example. When I had my boys, when I was pregnant and new babies, all I ever wanted to do at work was just survive. Like mm-hmm. that was my goal for myself. If I can survive the year, right. it's, it's an accomplishment. It was not to shine at work. It was not for me to learn aggressively. Right. Right. I would not be doing my startup when I was pregnant, when I had one four-year-old and pregnant with another and, you know, had a small baby. Mm-hmm. But now they're all like kind of grown up. So I, <laughs> I can do this now. Yeah, for sure. Um, actually, to go off a point you mentioned uh, earlier um, is they should have a heartbeat and kind of understanding of what's going on in the tech world, if you will, right? How do you kind of keep a heartbeat on that um, yourself? Like what type of news Uh, places do you read? Yeah. Okay, so um, everybody's, again, different. Unfortunately, that's going to be like sort of almost my time. For sure, for sure, yeah. I can tell you what I do. Um, So I regularly uh, dedicate uh, about 15, 20 minutes uh, to read up uh, on blogs. Um, I love buying books. I actually learn the best by going to conferences. So sometimes I will, uh, if I can, if I speak at conferences, then you get the pass for free. Otherwise, I put down the money and I have gone and taken, I've gone to courses. I have actually 
reinvented myself uh, twice or thrice in my career. And my husband has, in fact, sometimes he's the one who offers. He says, like, you know what, just go put the money and go take the class. Because he knows once I go there, I go to a conference or I take a class, I'm going to learn and I will use it. Definitely. So I have done that more than once. I reinvented when the whole mobile was starting. I when Even when we were on bond salary with a little child that really couldn't afford, um, we put down, like my husband and I, we put down for childcare. We put down um, $2,000 for a conference. I went and after some time, I was able to get back into the workforce. Then when I... Uh, wanted to so recently just recently during my startup um, I did not have any background in machine learning mm-hmm. um, or artificial intelligence and so and then there was also a personal development class mm-hmm. um, that was sort of pulling me down so again we were I was not working uh, before I started my startup uh, we were virtually again on one income but both my husband and I, we put down the money and this time it was a lot more money to, I took a class at Stanford for personal growth and then I went um, and attended a TensorFlow, uh, this thing. Oh, and nice. yeah. So yeah, you, basically you do have to invest in yourself. For sure. And, and we're, yeah, we, we sometimes like, we, we invest, we don't invest in ourselves and I think we do, we should. Yeah. Um, like in your industry, change happened so quick. Did you find like yes. going on mat leave or taking time off to have kids? Like, did, did you think that um, that was going to impact mm-hmm. you in your career and how far you were getting? Because um, I know you were saying like you wanted a stable environment around that time. But did that ever concern you that maybe you'll be held back or looked at differently? I wasn't concerned um, about it, that I would be left behind. I mean, um, my, I, I felt like there was a vacuum in my life. Mm-hmm. It was, it was boring. Like I'd studied, I was working, both of us, we traveled, whatever we wanted. There was that, no excitement. Mm-hmm. So there was actually like, I felt there was like a vacuum. So having a child sort of was something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. It did not, while it did not worry me that I was going to get left behind. Yes. While my children were young, it did bother me because I, I was always, I'm, I'm, I'm like an A plus player, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm used to being <laughs> on top of my game, right? I don't have to be the best in class, but I have to be on my own personal. Mm-hmm. For sure. The game, right? Yeah. yeah. And during that um, period of time, that was a little bit hard that I knew I could do more, but I wasn't able to, but that's something that's an investment into uh, being a parent mm-hmm. for sure having a family um, yeah but but I went back into the workplace because I couldn't really like after one year at home with my older son I was just I couldn't I I felt like I couldn't even be a good mom if I was not working mm. so and and I have a really cute story to tell um uh, my so the difference between my two boys is around four years and one day I just asked them when I think the older one was like in second grade and the younger the younger one was like three or four and I said what if I just leave my job and I be a full-time mom and I'll I'll go I'll go to drop you to school and I'll pick you up and I'll take you and uh and the younger one is like all dewy-eyed. I was like, yeah, mom, I would love that. And the older <laughs> one goes to him and says, don't do that. She becomes crabby if she's at home. <laughs> <laughs> and the little one, this like eight-year-old yeah. guy talked this four-year brother into like, no, we don't want that. <laughs> oh, her when she's at home, she needs to go to work. That's hilarious. Yeah, because that is a tough decision for a, a lot of working moms. Um, so it's good to hear that you know you can make it work. Yeah, for sure. But but then I I also was very um I had all these tricks that I developed over the years. Like, see, you cannot compete with stay at home moms, especially when it comes to volunteering at schools. Like, there is no way, right? So what do you do? 
to be creative. So what I would do was, ever since my younger one, my older one was actually in kindergarten, I would go up to the teacher and say, you know what, I work with all this cool tech stuff. Can I do a presentation in your class? And she would say, oh, we would love that, Mrs. Carr. And so I remember my older one was in kindergarten and I go there with, like, I used to work at Motorola. I got all Motorola phones, did there, did a presentation on cell phone works, teach them how to text. And then you become, <laughs> then you become the coolest mom and that's all that is needed (laughs) (laughs) that's hilarious good to know as as long as the friends think that this kid's mom is cool yeah done (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome I, i i used to commit i used to commit to one presentation in the class and one field trip i would chaperone that's all you have to do that's awesome i told you work it's yeah. the throughput. It's the output that matters, not the input. <laughs> exactly. And also, I think like this podcast was for young, uh, on like young professionals. But now parents are going to be listening to this, and they're going to be like, "We're getting crazy cool advice." Yes. No. It's 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 good advice. Good secrets. Um, so, where do you see yourself in a few years? I know you've got your startup that you're working on, and you've got consulting happening. But down the line, maybe five years from now, where do you see yourself? Oh, I don't, I, I, I stop thinking about that. Yeah. Take each day as you come. It's good. All right. So we're ending the uh, podcast soon, but before we end, we usually like to ask all our guests, these random rapid five questions. Um, so we're just going to jump into them. Uh, we're going to move on to the questions as quickly as possible. Um, so what is your favorite book? Uh, my favorite book, um, I I have a few, but I would think if there's one book that I had to carry with me and I was stranded on an island, it would probably be by Veer Singh's Gurmukh Sikhya. I love the little nuggets of information in them. Nice. Um, and what is your favorite quote and or Bonnie Bunkby? Uh, my favorite Bonnie Bunkby. Um, Rupahin Buddha Balahini like I have no beauty, understanding, or strength. I'm a stranger. Please unite me with yourself. Wow. And quote? Quote? Yeah. Or quote? Quote, quote. Uh, if you have, yeah. If not, then we can move on to the third question. A, fa- a favorite... Uh, Maybe uh, don't concentrate on the input, but throughput. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <do> <laughs> there you go. Um, so what is a weird quirk of yours? Uh, well, I'm, I have been accused. People sometimes think I'm very difficult and very unapproachable and that's because I tend to live more in my head than I live in the world. People have called people. So yeah, I mean, like people can come and talk to me and if I'm deep in thought somewhere, I would just look, look right past you. So right. that's... Fair enough. Uh, if you could meet anyone in history, who would it be? Uh, well, I'm going to s- sort of assume that we're not talking about the Guru Sabs, right? I mean, that's like too spiritual to <laughs> me an answer so um if i could go to sikh history then my Gorji. and if it would be uh, just anybody then i love um my favorite movie is hidden figures and i love katherine johnson and what she does in nasa mm-hmm. and there is a whole there is a whole there is a scene in that movie if you don't remember you should watch it where she walks into uh, the room and everybody looks at her and you know that there's that electricity where like nobody thinks she should be there and nobody has any confidence in her I have lived that moment so I really relate to it wow well. and then what is your biggest pet peeve biggest pet peeve yeah when people leave the conference room and don't clean the whiteboard i can relate to that oh i hate that um all right so uh we're ending off now um but 
last question. Uh, how would you describe yourself in one sentence? So, Balwinderko is? Person who's growing old but hasn't grown up yet. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> or constantly growing. <laughs> yeah. Hasn't grown up. <laughs> That's awesome. So as we're ending off, is there anything else you would like to tell our listeners today? Any uh, last pieces of advice? Uh, I don't know that um, life on earth is finite and just make the most of it. Don't spend your time worrying about things. I like that. Uh, thank you so much, Blavinder uh, Kaur, for sharing your story and being open. Um, we really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Experience Sikhi podcast. 